and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Chris Grayton. And today we have with us Eric Van Niet. He is a postdoctoral associate at Yale University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Eric uh, has a forthcoming book on Islamic philosophy. The title of the book is called The World of Image in Islamic Philosophy, Ibn Sina, Suhrawardi, Shahrazuri, and Beyond. It's coming out on Edinburgh University Press. Now, this podcast is part of our History of Science series, uh, and this is going to be, I think, one of the first podcasts that we do on Islamic philosophy. Yeah. So, some listeners might know kind of Islamic philosophy is a ra- rather uh, perhaps esoteric uh, field of Islamic intellectual history. They might have heard this notion that, you know, Islamic philosophy died after Al-Ghazali, uh, after this kind of um, surge of uh, anti-philosophical religious sentiment. Uh, but we're going to be talking about today kind of, well, what happened to Islamic philosophy in the early modern period? How did that get expressed in the commentary tradition? Uh, and I think we'll hopefully be delving into some of the commentaries about the Tahfut al-Falsafa of al-Ghazali and the responses to that by Ibn Rushd and uh, other Ottoman, sco- and Ottoman scholars. So, Eric, I found your article uh, very interesting uh, in the way that it introduces uh, us to early Ottoman uh, commentary on philosophical philosophical texts and a longer um, intellectual tradition uh, in Islamic writings. Uh, before we get into some of what Nir was talking about, this, this history of commentary and its development, um, perhaps you could very succinctly say how you define Islamic philosophy. What are we talking about when we refer to a body of philosophical texts in Islam? What exactly is this literature, uh, and what is its brief history? So, Islamic philosophy is that philosophy that is coming from the Islamic civilization. Mm-hmm. And the Islamic civilization started in around the 7th century in, in the Common Era, and uh, it runs basically up until today, although there is, of course, a, a significant split around, say, the 19th century, especially with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, I would say that a, a new era sort of uh, begins there. Mm-hmm. And that huge uh, history from the 7th century until the 19th century, that is sort of unified as a civilization. Uh, it has, it's not a monoculture, it does have various expressions uh, across, you know, across the geographical area that mm-hmm. it, that it uh, encompasses from Spain all the way until Indonesia, right? But it does have, yes, a sort of uh, a, a common discourse, if you will. Sure. And so, on one hand, we're talking basically about the history of Islamic thought or intellectual traditions in Islam. But when you say philosophy, I think there's actually a slightly narrower set of, as you said, a, pra- a discourse, but also a set of practices that uh, Islamic philosophers tend to center on. Right. So, and this this revolves then around the de- definition of philosophy, which yeah. has changed over time. Mm-hmm. What we what we now call philosophy is a little bit different from what people in the Middle Ages called philosophy. In the Middle Ages, all the sciences basically were called philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, also including mathematics and physics and chemistry, they were part of what they called philosophy. So philosophy for the Middle Ages and for our purposes for most of the history of Islamic civilization is basically the rational inquiry of, uh, you know, everything around us, of the world. Mm -hmm. There's this basic assumption that um, 
people that hear about Islamic philosophy think that, you know, this rational inquiry into the world kind of ended around 1200, perhaps ended with Al-Ghazali, uh, this notion that Islamic philosophy kind of died out in the medieval, late medieval period. Could you just explain, like, you know, wh- where does that assumption come from? So I earlier said that there was a significant change in the 1920th century, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the history before that is further subdivided, if you will, into a classical period and a post-classical period. And this classical period, it, it starts with the translation movement from Greek into Arabic, and then you have uh, the, the big names, Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, uh, Ibn Rushd. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of uh, the, the big names that uh, many people are now familiar with. If you open a, a history of philosophy book, you will undoubtedly will find these names. But beyond those names, it sort of stops. And, and so those names, they uh, together sort of form this classical period. And the post-classical period, it, as you said, basically starts after the 12th century. And it has, uh, it has received significantly less attention by scholars. Why is that? It is basically because what you, what you said earlier, it, it's not only that sort of the, the common opinion is that intellectual inquiry died out in the Islamic world after the 12th century, but it also has been the majority opinion among scholars of Islamic studies and of Islamic philosophy. They themselves also considered that the history of philosophy basically stopped after the 12th century. And I think there, there are just sort of, um, there are a couple of reasons mm-hmm. I think they propose. So uh, I think sort of five reasons they, they uh, or five arguments, if you will, they stand out. The first is that they perceive a certain hostility towards uh, rational inquiry by the ulama, the established religious authorities. And, and we'll go into each five, if you will. Um, the second one is that uh, they argue that um, the gates of uh, free inquiry have been closed. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know this, maybe the Arabic term, Bab al-Ijtihad, right? Uh, yep. That this has been closed and that therefore there should be no further, uh, you know, new exploration, uh, if you will. And the third reason is that uh, Al-Ghazali, uh, who lived in the 11th century and is uh, pretty much one of the most important Muslim theologians in history, he wrote a book called Tahafut al-Falasifa, which means something like the incoherence of the philosophers. And it's although it is a philosophical book in itself, it ends. he ends the book with a, uh, a fatwa, if you will, a legal ruling, saying that if you believe uh, a couple of things, uh, he specifies mm-hmm. three things, if you believe those things, then you're just not a Muslim. And, and this has, of course, uh, severe uh, repercussions in yeah. the real world. Uh, and so um, uh, scholars have argued that this has uh, discouraged others after him from, from uh, touching philosophy. And then two others of a very different nature are that on the one hand, you see after the 12th century, even though we say that there is no, uh, there's no real sort of philosophical inquiry, we do see this ocean of literature being produced. And it's so, and it sounds like sort of like uh, sort of like an, an inconsistency here, but it's actually thought that because there is this vast, vast, vast amount of literature written, it must be derivative. It you cannot write that much mm-hmm. original. 
stuff. And something that uh, goes along with it is this notion that uh, something that's very typical of this post-classical period is that a lot of authors wrote commentaries rather than original tracts, rather than mm-hmm. uh, something um, that they uh, sort of, uh, they can, rather than coming up with a title themselves yeah. and writing a discourse themselves, they took a text that was already there, they copied it, and then they inserted comments in between. They, uh, for example, uh, they, they would cite a couple of lines and then they would expand on it. Yeah. And so it has been argued that, well, if it's just commentaries, then it is unoriginal by its very nature Mm -hmm. because it's sort of servile to the uh, original text itself. Um, So on that note, I mean, you've written, um, in one of your articles, you've written about Al-Ghazali's The Incoherence of uh, Philosophy and then the kind of famous uh, response to that by Ibn Rushd, which he called The Incoherence of Incoherence. And it seemed... Uh, at least from my understanding of Islamic philosophy, that, you know, this was in a sense kind of what was the traditional mark of the end of, you know, rational inquiry of, of, you know, the shutting down of philosophy. But in your work, you've kind of uh, traced out some of these commentaries, traced out the longer lineage of uh, this discussion. Let's start with maybe a brief summary of kind of what is, uh, what was uh, Al-Ghazali's incoherence of philosophy kind of what were some of the responses and then we'll jump into kind of the commentaries that occurred right so this this uh, connects them with one of the five reasons why there's decline right yeah. and and it's specifically al-ghazali's book the, the tahafut al-falasifa and i think it uh, for in the scholarly field it has been a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that this mm-hmm. book closed or sort of sealed off any any further philosophical inquiry because the counter commentary by Ibn Rushd was very well known, yeah. uh, and it and actually it, it's interesting. The title of Ibn Rushd's uh, 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 text is Tahafut at Tahafut, the incoherence of the incoherence. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly meant to uh, to sort of uh, counterattack Al Ghazali's uh, point of view, and that has been sort of uh, that has been. Uh, accepted by the scholarly field and uh, actually been uh, studied very much and in great detail. Um, and I think that was uh, it was sort of a, a convenient uh, text to, uh, to study, mm-hmm. even Rush's counter-commentary, because it fitted in very well with this narrative, because then you have this sort of this narrative that, uh, oh, with Al-Ghazali, who, who wrote this text in Baghdad, uh, philosophy died out right. in the East, and then philosophy moves to the West, to uh, Muslim, uh, like Spain, to the Maghreb yeah. and Spain. And uh, and it sort of culminates with uh, Averroes, who, uh, Ibn Rushd, who dies in uh, 1198. Mm-hmm. So right at the very end of the 12th century. And then philosophy is translated from Arabic into Latin mm-hmm. and continues in Europe. Right. So you have basically you have that a transfer narrative from the Greeks to the Arabs to the Europeans and the Latins. Right. And Passing the baton, kind of. Exactly. That kind of idea. Yeah. Uh, and then you also have with that a kind of uh, presumption that you know religion, you know religion dislikes rational inquiry and science and things like that. Exactly, and and what exactly the fate has been for the for Al Ghazali's the incoherence uh, in the rest of the Muslim world has been 
pretty much uh, not studied. We mm-hmm. just simply don't know. And so the, the article uh, that I wrote was was sort of a first step towards uh, understanding better what then the impact, the wider impact of right. his book has been. And uh, very interestingly, we see that you know it's picked up actually in the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. in uh, in just a very uh, sort of uh, surprising way, so to say. Yeah. So one of the places that it gets picked up and uh, and that there's quite a lot of interest in it's in the court of Mehmed II. Could you just tell us a little about why was Mehmed II interested in it? Uh, you know, why why were some of the intellectuals at his court writing commentaries about it? Right. Well, I don't know. Of course, I don't know exactly why Mehmed II was interested in it, but all I can say that he was, and uh, in a big way that he, uh, I mean, it it has been pointed out that he was a patron of the arts, Yeah. but it seems that he was also a significant patron of the sciences, and mm-hmm. by that I, I also mean to include philosophy. If, if you piece together some of the evidence, it really seemed that uh, with uh, the conquest of Constantinople and uh, sort of the first formation of the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. he also wanted to create a, uh, a new Ottoman kind of discourse, a philosophical and scientific discourse, a school of thought. So he commissioned uh, important philosophical and scientific texts to be copied so we have very, uh, very well done uh, copies of highly, you know, scientific texts that are very difficult to mm-hmm. understand for anybody. And we see that he uh, that he had a, a whole, uh, a great number of scholars uh, in his service. And then a third aspect is that he commissioned sort of debates among these scholars. Mm-hmm. And so the commentaries that I've referred to, these Ottoman commentaries on al-Ghazali's incoherence came out of a debate that was staged by Mehmed II. So he uh, asked two uh, of the most important scholars mm-hmm. in, that he had uh, you know, around, he asked them to uh, both write their opinion on uh, al-Ghazali's incoherence. Right. So set up the two sides of the debate here. Who are the two, the two camps? What are their different um, views on al-Ghazali? Uh, so the the two scholars that were asked to do this were, were Hotjazade and Aladin Tusi. So Aladin Tusi actually came from Persia. He was uh, right. this is sort of a further aspect of Mehmed II's patronage of the sciences that he imported scientists from right. from Persia and and as far as uh, Samarkand, you know, yeah, he had Herat. people coming. Aladin yeah. himself is from Tus. Uh, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And so uh, these two uh, scholars, uh, they both wrote their opinions on on Al Ghazali, and they both uh, it was sort of um, uh, they they were asked it was sort of the question who who is right here is Al Ghazali right to be this harsh to the philosophers or are the philosophers in their right to be doing their own thing? And the answer that Khodjezad and Aladin Tusi give uh, is is actually very, very subtle. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not always as clear what exactly, um, which position they argue for, but mm-hmm. it does seem to be that Aladdin Tusi was a little bit more of a of a freer thinker, so to say, one to wish to give a, a more space to philosophy, whereas Khojazadeh was a little bit more on a conservative line and uh, trying to... Uh, curb in the, um, the the realm that philosophy is allowed to uh, to reign in. But in the end, when you read their text, it's not so much about answering this question. 
but it's much more about updating the discussions that Al-Ghazali started. Hmm. And so... What do you mean by updating? I, I mean that... Uh, they in in fact barely touch on al-Ghazali's text yeah. and they simply pick up, uh, they follow pretty much the chapters that al-Ghazali laid out. So first discuss the eternity of the world and causality and then discuss uh, 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 knowledge and uh, in particular God's knowledge mm-hmm. uh, and then discuss uh, the heavenly spheres and, and, um, and the theory of the soul and then uh, lastly, uh, resurrection and problems pertaining to that. They do follow Al-Ghazali's chapter outline, but then in the chapter itself, they simply uh, engage with the, the what, what is it, like 300, 400 years that are right. in between Al-Ghazali right. and, uh, and Khojazad and Aladdin Tusi. And they, uh, they just, uh, so I think, if you read Al-Ghazali's text and then you read Khojazadeh's or Aladdin Tusi's text, you see that there has been major development in yeah. philosophy and that it's, it's almost a night and day. So it's not just the, the work of these two thinkers from the Ottoman period that you're looking at, but really you're looking at like a whole history of thought that's gone on since Ghazali is what you're saying. Exactly, because if you closely look at their writing practices, mm-hmm. it is clear that they are... Uh, sort of copying and pasting from earlier sources. Mm. Um, without acknowledgement, they would just simply use arguments that uh, others, yeah. and especially Fakhreddin Razi and uh, Taftazani and Georgiani, these kinds of names, they, they were uh, the ones that they, uh, that they were interested mm-hmm. in the most. And then they sort of composed their own thought out of these arguments that were mm-hmm. uh, mentioned before. So in a sense, I mean, this is also a different vision of what we normally think of as a commentary. Uh, I mean, when I, or at least when I read commentaries, you know, there's just always this notion where like, okay, there's a line of original text and then the commentator just kind of explicates it, uh, just kind of explaining some unclear terms and things like this. But here really the commentary is its own kind of significant um almost philosophical argument exactly so the idea that a commentary is by its very nature servile and secondary to the original text mm-hmm. it's by already by this example you can throw it out of the window because it's simply not true true yeah. for for these people they uh they weren't following Al-Ghazali's text to the letter in fact they were very much just uh uh sort of going their own way mm-hmm and I presume you can use this kind of insight into the commentary tradition to kind of rethink, uh, uh, you know, the hundreds, thousands of commentaries out there on all sorts of different um, philosophical topics, but also often religious topics and uh, things like. That. So it 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 shows to me uh, that we uh, it it's a matter of how we approach this yeah. corpus of the post classical period. And it's our approach that will dictate whether we will be disappointed or whether we will be uh, sort of relieved or gratified mm-hmm. with what we're seeing. And and before, our usual approach was to, okay, we collect all the texts of one author and then we read all those texts and then we uh, think that we know what this author was, uh, was thinking about. Mm-hmm. And this approach... Is just uh, is just a flawed one for the post classical period, and, and you cannot use it. Could you just elaborate? I mean, so before you used to collect. I mean, what were you trying to achieve by reading all the text of an author versus? I mean, what what do we need to do for the post classical period? 
because uh, as I as I as I uh, just uh, mentioned, Khodjazad uh, and Aladdin Tusi, when they composed their texts, they yeah. were actually using uh, earlier sources. Uh, quite a lot, right? So not everything that you find in their text is per se their idea. Right, their own original. Th- so you're saying exactly. that their own original thought is not necessarily expressed just within their uh, Yes, the and, and not only that, but it's also that they don't even need to adhere to it. In fact, there is sort of, a, um, seems that there was a mindset at work that was very uh, sort of accepting of of other opinions, so a lot of these texts from, say, the 13th to 19th century, they have long, long discussions on uh, on points of views that the author does not uh, adhere to. Mm-hmm. But he will simply include the discussion because he finds it an interesting discussion for some reason. And even though he doesn't agree with it himself, uh, f- there, uh, there has been, there was some reason for him to still include it in his book. And this you can only sort of uh, unweave this entangle if you instead of uh, uh, looking at uh, all texts of one author uh, I sometimes say why don't we look at all authors of one text Mm -hmm. so it's a very different approach Uh, and and for example uh, when you are studying a commentary then you need to see it in the perspective of all the commentaries and um, and sort of, uh, so it's sort of a um, uh, a, uh, a dissection of texts uh, that goes through history rather than uh, grouping a, a set of texts uh, with one author. So what you're suggesting is that often these authors are not are kind of pastiching together different arguments from different other, from previous scholars and things like that. Uh, so I guess the one of the questions that this brings up is, you know, if you want to know something like what is an author's actual viewpoint and what are they actually arguing or trying to move forward, how do we get at that? Um, like, how do we understand that within the common tradition, or is it just pastiche? You got to put in the work. That's yeah. uh, um, and that's I mean, and that's sort of. Uh, I I think I suspect that many people. Uh, don't don't want to hear it. Just want to cut to the meat, you know. Just want yeah. to get to uh, to the interesting parts. But you uh, you just simply need to uh, uh, work your way mm-hmm. through a lot of material that's exactly the same. And once you have identified what's the same, then what is different will stand out yeah. immediately. And then you can zoom in on that what is different, and then you can see how it is different. So they do eventually add their own opinion in addition to it yes okay yes but they won't announce it you know they won't say like and now i will say my private opinion so this is something that's uh, it's very subtle and you you need to really uh put in a lot of work to uncover it Mm -hmm. so this is a bit quite different from like our own academic culture where you know we're always told you know state your argument say who you're against what's your intervention you know where you're very closely signaling to the reader kind of uh, where you place yourself and how you disagree heavily with the previous literature. Yes, I think by and large uh, there's uh, that that's a, that's a significant difference.
welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm with Chris Graydon, and we are talking with Eric Van Liet about uh, Islamic philosophy in the post-classical period, the commentary tradition, uh, and Al-Ghazali, and... Um, um, commentators on his work. So Eric, you've just kind of nicely described um, this practice of commentary that you see in the Ottoman period during the 15th century. Uh, how texts, uh, there's a large body of texts um, that do in fact contain material that is sort of copy-pasted from elsewhere. And then you look between uh, the lines of, of, of the similarities across text across time and find the things that are different that sort of set the authors apart. And that's how we can kind of get to the heart of uh, the practice of philosophy that you see during this um, early modern period. Um, obviously, a lot of this is going to be very, these authors are going to be making very subtle points. So we probably won't summarize all of them. But I was wondering if you could uh, pull out an example of where you see um the, the unique voices of the authors you've studied, these two authors, Hojazade and Tusi, um, how we can see their difference of opinion uh, and see how they um, develop uh, and build upon um, uh, the authors that they cite. Well, let's see. Um, Maybe just a, a single issue that they both touch on. Right. Uh, let me then at least, uh, yeah, let me, uh, let me um, tell you about an issue in which their, uh, their difference of opinion is very clear. Okay. And, uh, and I think it's an, it's an example that uh, you'll be able to follow. It's about bodily resurrection. And what was it? Bodily, re- okay. bodily resurrection. And this was, uh, this was a long-standing discussion between, let's say, the theologians and the philosophers. So theologians arguing from, based on scripture, on the Quran and Hadith, they argued for a bodily resurrection that after you die, that you will be resurrected with a body. And there are all these very physical bodily descriptions mm-hmm. of the afterlife in yeah. the Quran. And philosophers drawing from Greek philosophy, they uh, argued that uh, that the soul is what really matters, and what and the body is simply sort of a container. Um, and after you after you uh, perish, then the soul just lives on, and you don't need a body anymore. It doesn't make sense to return to a body. So they denied bodily resurrection, and this is one of the charges that Al Ghazali has against the philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Khodjezade and Aladdin Tusi, they uh, obviously discuss bodily resurrection, and they pick up on an on a uh, sort of a, a sub discussion of it that was uh, going around in in Islamic intellectual uh, discourse, and it considers the case of cannibalism. What if uh, what if near <laughs> right? What if near eats me? <laughs> and now my body becomes part of Nir's body. Classic problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and so, well, at that point, I have probably already died. And and at a later point, uh, it, Nir will also die. And then it is time for both of us to be resurrected, bodily resurrected. But what happens? My bodily, my my body parts are now part of Nir's body parts. So mm-hmm. in order for Nir to fully resurrect, uh, he needs his body parts and my body parts. But what does that leave me with? Uh, then I don't have any body parts to be resurrected with. So mm-hmm. my resurrection would not be complete. But if I instead would be resurrected, then you would not have your full resurrection. Right. So it seems that this argument 
shows that bodily resurrection is not possible mm-hmm. because uh, we would not be able to uh, uh, fully resurrect um, at the same time. And um, so, whose argument is this? This so this is an, an argument against bodily resurrection, mm-hmm. and uh, it's actually a classical argument. It's actually yeah. coming from before Islam, and it was uh, and it was uh, it made its way into Islamic discourse, um, and it was picked up by philosophers. For example, Ibn Sina did use this this argument. Mm-hmm. And the theologians, or those who at least wanted to, uh, they were still using philosophy, but wanted to argue for a bodily resurrection, they, um, well, they had to think of how to respond to this problem. And so here we see very clear difference between Khojazada's more conservative point of view and Aladdin Tusi's more, uh, let's say, uh, f- uh, philosophical or, or, or free thinking uh, point of view. Uh, Aladdin Tusi did, in the, it did indeed say that actually it's only the soul that really matters and, uh, and sort of uh, the soul can have some sort of bodily resurrection on its own or some sort of uh, spiritual mm-hmm. resurrection, if you will. And so uh, he uh, answered this problem just by simply saying that the soul is what matters and your body is, is of no consequence to uh, the afterlife. Khojazada answered uh, to the problem by saying that no, we have essential parts to us and there are also superfluous parts to our body. And uh, though the superfluous part may be uh, digested by another person uh, and and sort of become part of that other person's body, mm-hmm. these uh, essential parts, they are indigestible and therefore they will always be as they are and they will always uh, be able to uh, be uh, gathered at at the day of resurrection mm. for that person. And so everybody has their own essential parts, and it's those parts that are used for the bodily resurrection. What What are those parts like bones? Is that I mean, <laughs> this is of course, like platonic forms stated. No, a lot of times, in fact, a lot of times, uh, it is uh, it is left undiscussed, yeah. which is not very satisfying. <laughs> but sure. Um, so yeah, on these two sides, Hojazade uh, or Tusi, uh, are they just restating and pastiching together other people's opinions, or uh, like are either of these? opinions of theirs, uh, kind of new arguments in the philosophical tradition? No, so they, they were standard positions, yeah. yes. But uh, they, uh, the, 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 way, the way they argued for it um, was, uh, especially Aladdin's version, I think, was, was uh, very interesting to read. And I haven't been able to find uh, a, a sort of a good source that he was using on mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. So there's both a, you know, it's not just about the new argument, but also the way of making that argument that uh, um, can be a, a place of innovation and so forth. Oftentimes, this yeah. is this is the most significant part of, uh, you know, of of their of their discourse uh, that they use a certain argumentation in a new setting or in a new context. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Nir Shafir talking to Eric Van Litt about his research on uh, Islamic philosophy during, uh, during the Ottoman period. I want to remind our listeners that you can check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to see the bibliography for this podcast, as well as find other episodes in Nir Shafir's own History of Science series um, that touches on a wide array of subjects uh, in the history of science in the Ottoman Empire in the broader non-Western world, uh, broadly conceived. So, Eric, you raised a methodological question earlier in our conversation about how to approach this large corpus uh, of texts that we have from your period of study. Uh, And I think that that question ties in nicely with, I know, what some of your broader interests are regarding digital tools and digitization of texts and the implications of digitization uh, for the way we study uh, Islamic thought uh, and manuscripts of the early modern period. And I've enjoyed some of your commentaries on your website, The Digital Orientalist. People can find the link on our webpage in which you kind of expound on the, the um, you know, issues from the mundane to the very profound regarding um, how we approach um, Islamic manuscripts in the digital yeah. age. You know, as we've been talking about, there's quite a few challenges when it comes to approaching this post-classical period. So in your work, on the digital orientalist, like how do you see these digital tools uh, helping address or solve or uh, giving us new approaches to to the intellectual history of this period? I think they're immensely important, and in fact, the, the Ottoman intellectual history is is a prime example of the difficulties involved in in studying intellectual history in the post classical period. Uh, I mean, first of all, you've got to. Uh, realize that these uh, sources are not readily available. It's not that you just uh, take them off the shelf in in a bookshop and start reading them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the uh, the interesting philosophical texts and the interesting scientific texts are either uh, not printed at all, or uh, and they just simply survive in manuscripts, or they are printed in nineteenth century you know, prints or early 20th century prints. Mm-hmm. And so it's very uh, uh, difficult to even access these texts. And uh, what we see now is that with digitization, all of a sudden uh, these texts are become much more uh, in within reach, within hands reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because... Uh, and, and and the Ottoman uh, the Ottoman case is actually a very good case. If we look at Turkey, they've been digitizing manuscripts uh, at an incredible rate. Mm-hmm. And in Istanbul right now, I think pretty much all of the manuscripts have been digitized. Um, right, nearly every manuscript in a state depository is digitized in Turkey. Exactly, and and so with uh, with relatively little effort we can get uh, photos, uh, digital photos of a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it would be so great if they would just actually make them freely available on the website. Uh, that would that would even, even more increase the accessibility of this. Mm-hmm. And so it has become much easier to just pick up a manuscript okay. and start reading a text. And uh, uh, so on one hand, you have this kind of greater accessibility because of the digitization. Uh, you know, beyond the kind of dissemination and uh, accessibility aspect, like what what tools can we? What do you think? What tools can we apply to analyzing this work? Uh, well, if just, you wanted to go that way, so. yeah. There's so there's this tool that I recently uh, uh, noticed, uh, and it uh, has a database of early Arabic printed books. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's drawn from the British Library, I believe, and 
it uses new a uh, new kind of OCR software, meaning uh, optical character recognition. So it can uh, even though there are images, photos of the of the pages of these books, it still is able to uh, sort of uh, the machine, the computer is able to read what is on the pages. Yeah, and so you can search for a term within these this corpus of text, and. Um, and it's not perfect, of course. There, uh, there are cases where you know there are false positives, and there are also uh, cases where it should have recognized it and it didn't yeah, recognize. Yeah. But nonetheless, I just with that tool, I found something uh, that uh, that uh, I was I had no idea of. I would have n- not been able to to find it any other way. Um, that uh, Karabaji was discussing a uh, a topic that Sukhravardi. Um, had been picking up on in the 12th century, hmm. and uh, so I think this is this is a, a new way for us to uh, unlock the sources that have been sort of closed for right. for a long time. So you can see more. Uh, assuming one day we can get to the point where we can, um, you know, do some sort of OCR, larger um, mechanical uh, reading of these texts, we can see more closely the citations and the kind of intertextuality of all these uh, commentaries and so forth yes so uh in in literary theory they 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 coined this term distant reading mm-hmm. so whereas uh, uh you would study a a, a classic a, a a text that you know is a great work you study it by close reading it by very carefully right. reading it and then trying to anal- uh, uh, analyze every sentence etc cetera, etc cetera. if you do not know what the classics are, and that's basically the case for us with the post-classical period. We don't really know what the classics are. Then you need to, instead of a close reading, you need to adopt a distant reading. Mm-hmm. And you you do that by involving huge quantities of text because you don't know what is, uh, what is worth closely reading and what is uh, not worth closely yeah. reading. So that's the work you need to put in first in order to discover what you can then, you know, further uh, analyze closely. And uh, for those listeners that are interested in hearing more about this, uh, Eric and I were both at this uh, conference on uh, distant reading the Islamic archive uh, that was at Brown University in the autumn of 2015. Uh, and I believe there's even a, a, a rec- a video recording of that conference so you can go to the website and hear uh, Eric's presentation on the topic and Nears as well and mine (laughs) so thank you Eric for this wonderful conversation I think we've really kind of uh, got in a sense an overview of the narrative of Islamic philosophy the challenges of moving it beyond uh, the classical period and how to kind of some of the techniques we need to do to approach Ottoman intellectual history especially when dealing with commentaries and trying to figure out uh, uh, these often very subtle opinions uh, of philosophers, of other intellectuals, and how to extract them from the texts. Uh, And I hope the listeners have kind of gotten a small taste of what uh, Islamic philosophy is like uh, and the debates involved in it. So thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And for those listeners that would like to uh, know more, please go to the website. There's a bibliography of uh, a few sources that you can uh, peruse uh, to find out more about the topic. Also join our Facebook group where you can find a very nice community of like-minded listeners. Uh, Otherwise, tune in to another show next week. Thank you. Thank you.